Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Wow, do I love that music or what? <laughs> We're having far too much fun, Nick Shalina, here on The Universe Next Door. That was an unorthodox opening to the show, but I just felt I had to say that. Because I love Handel's beautiful music in this incredible album that we're now using. Oh, it really is great. Yeah, so the great George Friedrich Handel, who is, of course, the author of many wonderful pieces, composer, I should say, of fantastic all-time great pieces of music. Handel's Messiah, Handel's uh, great work on creation, Elijah, you know, I could go on and on, but... There's a, a just a beautiful album, and it's the English Concert, uh, the group that actually performs in England and uses period, literally crafted pieces, uh, period piece uh, of musical instruments that is created as they were in the mid-1700s, both uh, woodwinds and strings and all the you know the, the the horns and everything, just the way they were used in that time. And so Trevor Pennick and his whole group uh, do a masterful work in recreating, you know, music for the Royal Fireworks and all these fantastic suites that we uh, represent now as at least a squidgen, a little bit of that music on the opening of our program. Well, you know, the beautiful music that is uh, pre presented there is just a little tiny icicle on the top of the tip of the iceberg of the creativity of mankind. But the ultimate source of our creativity is the ultimate creator himself the God of the universe, the God who transcends the universe. He transcends the four dimensions, the three dimensions of space, the one dimension of time. He is the creator of space and time, and he himself inhabits eternity. And of course, um, I was just meditating yesterday, Nick, on how amazing it is that the God who is infinite and uncaused, the God is the source of all reality, uh, humbled himself to become a man. When we wrecked things, when we ruined things in the, in the person of our original father, Adam, and of course, uh, mother, original mother, Eve, made that fateful, horrible choice, and this spiraling downward, of course, led into the, the, the judgment, the righteous uh, judgment upon sin, but then God didn't leave it in that condition. He, he entered mankind, became one of us, came close to us. And not only that, he didn't just, you know, come alongside the problem. He literally took the problem on his own back. Although he had not ever sinned and never will sin, uh, we see in the book of Isaiah, in that triumphant chapter, Isaiah 53, that the perfect son of man, the servant, I love that, that title given to him, the one who served the Father's will, who served this master plan perfectly and shouldered the burden of our sin, literally suffering, making the payment for the rebellious sins, the rebellious actions of his people, of us. And then shouldering them, uh, not only bore the, the punishment, paid the full debt, but arose. And that uh, last three verses, 10, 11, and 12 of that uh, dozen verses in Isaiah 53, 
shout that uh, you know that triumph literally out of the grave he arose and I'm so excited that we have a chance to talk about the life of Christ in terms of uh, the the acts of Christ dying being cut off as an as a prophecy so uh, this leads right into our apologetic uh, emphasis uh, for today. Our chosen topic is the most spectacular prophecy of all time. Now, let me ask you, Nick, if I can just bring you right in. How important on the scale of importance, let's say one through five, one being not very important, minimal, five being top, top. How important is biblical prophecy in the work of an apologist? Um, a six. <laughs> okay. You're off the chart. That's good. I like it. I like it. So it's extremely important. It cannot be minimized. It should be taught in any course on apologetics. And that's a reminder to you and me since we teach apologetics. So the, the, the great apologists of all time uh, have properly prioritized biblical prophecy especially the, the detailed, important prophecies that have been fulfilled. Now, there are prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, such as? Uh, the end of the world, Jesus. Oh, very good. Coming okay. in judgment. <laughs> Jesus return. Us getting caught up with him. And, exactly. Yeah. The rapture and things like that. So, so you know, there's, there's a whole trainload of, of future, yet future prophecy fulfillments that, that we anticipate. We have confidence. We have full faith in the Word of God, the, the Bible, the 66 books and their prophetic content. But those prophetic, you know, turning points, those, those pivotal events that are not just like a prophecy in the Old Testament— but a fulfillment that we see coming in the New Testament, those are the, the pop, if you will. That's the explosion of truth that rings out from the Bible, which then confirms and validates, or you might even use the word vindicates, the truth of the Bible. And I get excited about that. And I think anybody who investigates the Bible, I have a true story. And uh, Rich Aiken, who used to work in this very office, we're up at Trinity College in the office of the C.S. Lewis Society, which was originally founded, of course, at Princeton. And Rich Aiken said to me, he says, you know what really brought me from being an agnostic to a Christ, to being a, a follower of Christ was this spectacular prophecy. And I thought he was going to talk about, you know, the resurrection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something, you know, I've, something about Christ, you know, Isaiah 53, which he and I love Isaiah 53. But he said, no, it was Daniel 9. Wow. And my, my eyebrows twitched. I said, really? Because I love Daniel 9. I said, he said, oh, he says, I'm an accountant. I'm a CPA. He says, I know my math. And when I was beginning to tally up the years and the prediction that you find in Daniel 9, that it actually gives you a countdown from the time Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9 gives you a countdown from the time of Nehemiah chapter 1 all the way down to the literally the year and you can bring it down to the week if you want to and even the very day on which Christ would be crucified wow and i said i said that's terrific and i think i reached for this book on my shelf i'm holding in my hand the chronological aspects of the life of christ let me repeat that title one more time chronological aspects of the life of Christ. 
The author is Harold Honer. Uh, he's now with the Lord. He just, I think, passed away about five years ago. He was a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary. Honer is spelled by, by the way, H-O-E-H-N-E-R. Harold Honer, top scholar in the New Testament department when I was there. But Harold Honer, was, whose specialty was the New Testament, especially the, uh, the King Herods of the New Testament, did this study on the life of Christ, and he has a whole chapter on the Daniel 9 prophecy. I said, so are you familiar with this book? He said, oh, yeah, I have it. Wow. And he's, I said, well, this is really tremendous. So what I thought would be really trem- tremendously important is for us to zoom in on this and just take our time. You know, we, we'll, we'll, we'll introduce the topic. We may not finish it today. That's okay. But uh, we'll, we'll at least lay out the, the terrain and get the big idea, you know, encapsulated. And we'll unpack it as far as we can. And so, are you ready? Is your seatbelt on, Nick? It is. Okay. Vroom, vroom, vroom. My helmet's on, too. Okay, very good. I think we may go through some pretty tight turns in this uh, amazing course here. So, what we're trying to talk about is something that really was brought forth in the time of Daniel. And, of course, Daniel was a prophet that, that spoke and wrote in captivity. And we're speaking about the the great prophet, uh, of course, found as one of the major prophets, although he is only 12 chapters in length. And the difference between major prophets and minor prophets is not their importance, but literally their length. So the the major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, are grouped together because they're a little bit longer. You may say, wait a minute. Hosea is as long as Daniel. Yeah, I know that. So technicalities. <laughs> How does Hosea get stuck with a with a minor prophets? Hey, hey, next question. <laughs> I don't want to even he answer. He was short. That. He was, yeah. And so, but anyway, uh, so Daniel is right there with the major prophets. Well, he's major in importance for sure. So let's talk about Daniel. He has a mixture of both prophecy and true amazing stories. I have a privilege of teaching the book of Daniel. And if anybody is here in Central Florida, you can even check out uh, the, the time on Tuesday and Thursday morning in which uh, this fall at Trinity College, I'll be doing my course on Daniel and Revelation here at Trinity College of Florida. Uh, the best source, in my opinion, of studying this prophecy and all of the context around it in the book of Daniel is a classic. It's a classic book, and it's called, uh, at least in a new edition, it's called Daniel... That's uh, really shocking that a book on Daniel Very would be called Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, but at the top it says the John Walvoord Prophecy Commentaries. It's a new series uh, that just came out uh, from Moody. And so it's John Walvoord revised by Charles Dyer, D-Y-E-R, Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. You know, I've had people tell me, you shouldn't spell names on the radio. You know, I'm going to do it anyway, because if people are taking notes, you know, um, anyway. So Daniel, uh, the author of this uh, tremendous commentary, it's the best commentary, in my opinion, ever written on Daniel by John Walvoord. Again, two O's in the uh, last part of his name. John Walvoord was president of Dallas Seminary for a number of years, and a classmate of mine, Charles Dyer, uh, helped him to revise it. It's a tremendous update of a great commentary. And if you go to chapter the chapter 9 part of it, it will really complement the work of Harold Honer. That, that's enough on books. Uh, I'm gonna, just going to talk about the material from the Bible 
passage itself from now on. Uh, if you open Daniel 9 and turn to the, the context of what's going on, you see that Daniel is before the Lord in very intense, ardent prayer. It's a prayer of confession. He is confessing the sins of his people in captivity. And it says here in Daniel 9, um, verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made my confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Now, at this point, Daniel's just getting warmed up. <laughs> you say, wait a minute, that's a pretty strong confession. Yeah, it is. But he's going to expand it, and he's going to deepen it. He's going to rat ratchet it up. I mean, it's going to get hotter, you know, and it's going to be deeper, and it's going to be more heartfelt. And he's literally... Uh, on behalf of his people, saying we have been a disaster in our in our reckless pattern of sin, our horrific downward spiral. I think I mentioned that that picture before into uh, awful, uh, you know, rebellion away from your ways. And at this point, you know, he's just acting as like a priest for the whole. Uh, nation of Israel. And God, there's something that clicks with God's heart when we confess sin. And I, th I, don't, I don't think it's just a happenstance. I don't think it's a coincidence that it is in the context of confessing sin that God moves in to encourage. God loves to lift us up when we prostrate ourselves and recognize our waywardness. He says, okay, now that you are recognizing your failure, let me yank you up to my success. And so that's where there's the great switcheroo. You like that term? Yeah, I love it, that term. It's a technical yeah. term. God switches. The, it's a, God's, it's a theological God, term. Yeah, very, very theological term. God's switcheroo. That is, he's going to switch the direction from focusing on the sin. He, he's going he's gonna to pat, as it were, Daniel, pat him on the shoulder, say, okay, that's good, that's good. Yeah, okay, you, you're, you're, you're through with that. And he's going intervene, to intervene, not directly, you know, through, through, let's say, the Holy Spirit fluttering down like a dove, but through his angel. Gabriel literally interrupts him in the midst of this prayer of confession and says, I have a message for you. So let's just wow. jump down to verse 20. And, uh, and like I say, I'm, I'm skipping 
literally um, verses, well, 10 through 20. So anybody who wants to read the, the chapter, you can fill in the blank, just read 10 through 20, where this confession goes on and on, like I say, deeper and more heartfelt every verse, uh, and talking about all the calamity that their sins have, have triggered, have caused. So Gabriel just barges in, and the scene gets very interesting very quickly here. Gabriel says in verse 20, while I was, or, or the, the text, Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And here it comes. So, uh, at this point, I want to just say that we are entering holy ground. Yeah, I just the tension just builds. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, we need it's to have like passage. we need to have the low strings of the orchestra come up <laughs> because we're entering the most pivotal uh, verses, prophetically speaking, of the entire Bible. Daniel nine twenty four through twenty seven. This is the core, this is the key that unlocks everything else from here on for the rest of the book, right through the book of Revelation. Because if you get wrong, if you stumble here, you're going to be stumbling the rest of the way. If you get it right here, you'll not only see the dazzling, shocking, exhilarating, mind-boggling power of prophecy— and the confirming truth of the biblical revelation, the confirming truth of biblical Christianity, but you'll also be able to understand prophetically what God is unfolding from this point onward. And so I'll just, you know, as I've said to so many of my classes here at Trinity College here in Florida, that when you understand the biblical key of Daniel 9:24 through 27, you will simultaneously, you'll at the same time, be handed a key to the most powerful prophecy, most da dazzling proof of the Christian faith in, that's found in prophecy. And at the same time, as a bonus, you're given a second key, and that is the key to understand prophetic truth, eschatology, that is. And, and that includes especially such things as, in my view, the rapture, the tribulation, the Antichrist, and the destruction of Jerusalem that happens between the tribulation and the death of Christ. Uh, because all of these things are being referred to. Now, uh, we're, we've got about three minutes left in this broadcast, so let me try to at least introduce the big picture. And maybe uh, and we can come back next week and go into the details and just walk through this. Um, yeah, Does that great. sound like a plan? That sounds like a great plan. Okay. So let's just jump in. I'll read these, and then I'll, I'll give a, a synopsis. The 70 weeks are decreed. I'm reading 24 through 27. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. That's referring to Jerusalem. 
to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat but in a troubled time and after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And here's 27, the last verse. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, now that everything is perfectly clear, let's end in prayer. <laughs> uh, okay, the, now we have a little bit of a hill to climb and about two and a half minutes to do it in. So what is this prophecy? Let me just uh, summarize in, in the essential um, capsule summary approach. This is laying out a timeline. And, and Daniel says a decree... He's given this prophecy in 530 B.C., a little bit before that perhaps, but no later than 530. And he's told uh, that you will literally, you know, you, your people, this is the prophecy for his whole people, for Israel, you will be experiencing a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. That decree happened in 444 B.C. under the Persian emperor. And that decree is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2. The, the need of it for rebuilding Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls and the city, is laid out in Nehemiah chapter 1. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah, the right-hand guy, the cupbearer to the Persian emperor, is given a leave of absence, and he goes back and he rebuilds the wall, but also helps to rebuild the city and the people. So that happened in 444 B.C. There are then 69 weeks, it says, that are ticking down. 69 weeks, what does that mean? 483 years. If you use a 360-day year, which you find is the uh, the prophetic year, that's the what we you know a year is 365 days, but in the scripture they rounded it off to 360. If you use the prophetic years and do the calculation, uh, 69 weeks of years, that is 69 sevens, or 483 years, the ticking away brings you to a date of 33 A.D. According to this prophecy, a Messiah, an anointed one, will come and be cut off at the end of the 69th week. Guess what year that was? 33 A.D. Wow. That's amazing. So this, in effect is a prophecy of not only the roughly the time, but the exact year in which the Messiah would die. So when Jesus was being nailed to the cross, 
in fulfillment of Isaiah 53. It was also a fulfillment of Daniel 9, verses 24 through 26. Now, verse 27 is equally fantastic, and we'll come back and address that next week because it's equally important. So it's been a great opportunity for us to at least introduce this. And next week here on The Universe Next Door, we'll conclude our discussion of the most amazing prophecy of all time found in Scripture. Thanks for joining us here on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.